Hey Boneheads, Ryan Howard here with an exciting announcement. On December 5th, I'll be presenting as part of the What's Hot in Indie RPGs seminar from Dragon Meat. Now for anyone unfamiliar, Dragon Meat is the UK's friendliest tabletop games convention. It features role-playing, board games, miniature games, cosplay, and so much more. And the What's Hot in Indie RPG seminar is returning for its eighth year with a special international edition. This year, we'll be talking about some of the hottest games and trends from 2020. The seminar will be hosted by Lloyd Guyon and Rob Carnell, and produced by Epistolary Richard. So I hope you guys will join us for Dragon Meat virtually this year, and I hope you'll tune in for the What's Hot in Indie RPGs segment to hear what I have to say and hear what others have to say about some great games out there that might not be on your radar. Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am, of course, Ryan Howard, your host and the king of the boneheads, and joining me again this evening, a man known by many names, uh, perhaps you know him as Hanker Infernal, perhaps you know him as Brandish Gillelm, uh, but ladies and gentlemen, he is back once again, so Hanker, and welcome to Rollin' Bones yeah. one more time. Thunder! Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me, brother. No problem. No problem at all. It's it's been I think it's been a little over a year since the last time you were on. Uh, a lot of things have changed since then. We're now live, which You've is... been uh unlike me, totally consistent since then, which is amazing. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So we can uh, we we've got a couple different ways that we can go. I didn't have a specific topic in mind. You had mentioned something about taco recipes, which I am of course always down to discuss. Mm. Um, and then I also picked up a little uh, book by the name of Index Card RPG Core Second Edition that I've got here <laughs> uh, for everyone that we can talk a little bit about too. <laughs> but it looks like you've uh, you've put out some. Uh, some pretty cool stuff this year. Uh, last time we talked, you were working on your cyberpunk uh, kind of expansion for uh, Index Card, and now Altered State is uh, released on DriveThru. Yeah, Altered State actually is is a sort of a mega seller at this point. Uh, with I, I I don't know. Last I checked, I think we have over five thousand players of altered state there's there's been so many games a bunch of them are on youtube as well and like people playing on roll 20 seem to 
like Roll20 and Cyberpunk kind of go together in a nice way. Uh, yeah, Altered State is brilliant, but not because of me. Uh, I just, I am good at drawing guns, but uh, Alex Alvarez really is the brain behind Altered State. He really created that. He named it. He sort of gave that world its life. And yeah, that was a, that was a huge success, continues to be a huge success. Uh, a lot of people seem to be having fun with that. It, it basically, we tried to say like Shadowrun is dope and let, like, let's keep evolving it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, Actually, it wasn't too terribly long ago I had the guys from the Wild Die podcast on, and one of them was super into index cards. Uh, mm. So that, that got me thinking about uh, this system again and, and got me to pick it up and, and think about you know starting to, to run games in it. I have not yet run anything uh, with ICRPG, but I am super excited to teach some people to play because it's a pretty simple system to pick up uh, once you actually read through it. it's You know, if you're playing D&D, you're playing it. it. It's a total bastardization of of all D20 play over the years. Hmm. It, it's like everyone who has said there's a rule that maybe is inconvenient at their table is is doing what I did in that book. And, and I tried, I've, I continue to try to say this. It's, it's not a rule set. It's a, it's a reductive process. Mm -hmm. I really think that our hobby is a reductive process. Like we, we gather shit tons of stuff. I mean, especially the weirder ones among us, we read everything, but we play 1% of it mm -hmm. and we cut it down and down and down and down. And that really was the spirit of that that book and hopefully that that is what it represents i don't think it's really a system you play it's more like a mindset you adopt gotcha yeah and i can i can definitely see that um i mean that like you said the the dna is all there uh so anyone <laughs> anyone familiar with any kind of rpg system i, I do recommend this book too and um i will do an in-depth review of this at some point uh once Probably in December, I'll, I'll sit down and do a full review like I like to do with uh, a lot of the books that I pick up and a lot of the, the people who come on the show, I like to review their stuff. So we'll be doing that at uh, some point, not too terribly far in the future. <laughs> but one other thing I wanted to mention, and I just found out about this, uh, but back in June, you put out... Uh, kind of a, uh, a cyberpunk answer to like a choose your own adventure book. Yes. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. Retune. Uh, Retune was one of the hardest projects I've ever done. Ever. I mean, um, when I first wrote Retune, I wanted to do a choose your own adventure cyberpunk, as you mentioned. And um, that seems relatively simple on paper. But I also wanted to do an adult choose your own adventure. I, I, I wanted it to be uh, powerful. I wanted it there to be sadness and I wanted it there to be a love story. And also some of the sort of, um, I don't know, the nostalgia that comes with cyberpunk. You know, in, in cyberpunk, they always look back, just like we look back on 
um, you know, the days before the bike trails got developed into a subdivision, right? We, we all know that pain. Um, but in a similar way, I imagine a cyberpunk world sort of looking back on the days when we all only had one identity or one body and how simple it was. And, and I wanted to capture that and turn it into a love story and also have a bunch of explosions uh, and gunfire and swords. And um, it took longer to proofread Retune and to fix all the different circuitry that connects the choices and the emotional flow of those choices. It took longer to do that than it did to write it. Um, so that book, it, it, it has not sold as well as my fantasy series. Uh, it's probably sold two thirds as well. Mm-hmm. But as a as a creative person, that is one of the greatest achievements really of my life. I am so proud of that book. But I can see how that book can be disorienting for people. Um, but just as a concept, I'm so proud of that book about like you you don't even know what gender you are in that book. And I, I'm very proud of it. So thanks for bringing that up. I, I hope more people read Ritu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, as we mentioned before we went on the air, I, I'll be turning 25 in just a couple of weeks. So I, I remember kind of the tail end of reading Choose Your Own Adventure books. Uh, I, I vividly remember there was a Star Wars one that I yeah. was was super into. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. But for like my, my little sister, who's just three years younger than me, she never read choose your own adventure books that whole that whole generation that grew up with the internet uh mm. kind of like the tail end of my generation so they they don't they never really experienced that and it's it's a cool thing to kind of bring back and explore because i know there's got to be a lot of nostalgia for it out there but there's not a lot of people who are still putting that kind of stuff in the market i guess because a lot of people are going, well, I'll just play a video game. So I, I, I think you, yeah, well, you pinned down a very, a very big topic, honestly, Ryan, <laughs> which maybe for me uh, at, you, Hey, and full transparency, you're going to turn. Oh my gosh, you're 25. I'm 47. So for me, maybe it wasn't so much about like, I'm going to make a bunch of profit. I think for me, it was something I needed to express. It's like someone who grew up being around Matisse. So if you hang around with Matisse, you want to do a portrait of somebody that has like false color and has exaggerated forms and uses the oils in a certain way. Now, the art form that Matisse presented, Impressionism, is not really prevalent in our society today but for people who were in that era i do think that expressing yourself artistically is terribly important Hmm. and the relevance of art is a different topic for the artist i don't think relevance is a topic or, or a sort of an evaluative criteria that the artist should think about mm-hmm. and and for me as an artist Choose Your Own Adventure was one of the most beautiful forms of art. It was wonderful. And maybe the internet has made it obsolete. Maybe it will come back. Maybe analog things will return. 
you know, social trends aren't something that terribly interest me as an artist. But as an artist, as a writer, that was a challenge that had been, it was a glove slap. And I needed to answer that glove slap. <laughs> and for me, Retune was my absolute best attempt to show what Choose Your Own Adventure could be for a bigger brain, not not intended for children like Codename Jonah or, you know, some of the other books, mm-hmm. which were great. Like, I loved the submarine book. I loved also the, the fantasy, um, fight, fighting fantasy series with, Citadel of Chaos and the uh, Warlock on whatever mountain. I love those, but Citadel of Chaos is probably the most influential to me. And then Codename Jonah toward the end, which was maybe um, 85 or so. They influenced me as an artist. And so I wanted to do it as an artist. And so far, the people reading Retune have a little bit of the response that you describe of like, man, do people still do this? (laughs) So I think your little sister maybe is a, is a sign of well, Mm -hmm. art collecting dust, I suppose. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's always going to be media that falls by the wayside because it's not, you know, it's not the latest trend. It's not, what our technology is currently capable of. I mean, like black and white films are a good example of that. There, mm. There's art. There's a lot of yeah. art to be found in making a black and white film, and some people yeah. still do that, but you're not going to see a major motion picture unless there's some like very rare exceptions out there that use black and white, but some people will still revisit that trend, uh, you know, for to make an artistic statement because that's something they want to that's a sandbox they want to play in Uh, i think people still do that even with like the the super pre-comic book conception of pulp fiction as well that's something that people are still interested in exploring and even though there's not going to be that huge audience out there and maybe you know like you said that's not necessarily what you're going for uh, but there are still going to be people out there who appreciate that this particular piece of media has not been forgotten. And this, uh, you know, there's still people out there who are willing to explore this path. Mm. Well, artists, artists are notorious for being outside their era, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And it, in, in some ways, it's a litmus, a litmus test for the difference between craft and art. You know, I've always said that craft is fun and art is torment. And, and I, I still believe that it like art is sort of an archival process in some ways. And you know what, there is one, I, I love the way you describe it, Ryan. There's one exception I can think of that, that sort of brings it to the forefront, which is Sin City. Mm-hmm. And, and this is only because of the absolute incomparable genius of Frank Miller. Oh yeah who has been almost the the designer of 21st century composition in film. And I think him and Mike Mignola basically designed the first two decades of movies in the 21st century. And in only one case was this sort of 
you know, pushed to such an extreme. And I think it was Sin City. You know, it's like this movie can't be done unless it's black and white. Mm-hmm. And and I, I salute that. Now, is it outdated? Is it uh, sort of locked in its era? You know, is Casablanca boring because it's sort of grayscale? Well, I, I suppose that's something for the archives to tell. But for the artist, you just work in the medium that you know and you you trust that it matters. Mm-hmm. I love the way you describe it, Ryan. It's 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 both cutting and flattering at the same time. It's sort of it cuts to the core and also makes me feel like, fuck yeah, I held my ground. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. But yeah, I mean like you it's something that kind of resonates with me as I've been kind of going through the history and, and the biography and, and the mind of Robert E. Howard and people who listen to the show all the time are going to get so sick and tired of me talking about this. Um, <laughs> Cause when I get excited about something, I get super excited about things, but you know, I recently discovered that I am a distant relative of Robert E. Howard's. Um, our, our last names being the same is not a coincidence. We're related. It could totally explain why you're fascinated with it. Mm-hmm. It's and, in your blood. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, part of the fascination was me trying to figure out, am I related to the man who created Conan the Barbarian? But the answer is yes. Yes. Yeah, the answer is yes. And now I feel that that fascination is completely justified. Well, it changes from a fascination to a duty, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, for the longest time, I was, you know, wondering, am I actually ever going to write something or am I just going to pretend uh, that I think I'm a writer and never actually write anything. <laughs> and then well, I that's, find... a, that's a blurry difference, my yeah. friend. <laughs> and then I and then I find out that Robert E. Howard is my fifth cousin four times removed, and suddenly the spark is there, and now I'm back to working on my fantasy series. Well, he he asked himself the same question yeah. at, at every turn. I mean, he was rejected just like H.P. Lovecraft constantly his work was considered pulp mm-hmm. it was considered junk um and he constantly questioned well i mean we if you really want to take it to the to the bitter end you know that him questioning his value as a writer was a never-ending part of what made him brilliant mm-hmm. as an artist and that seems to be in your blood too but I bring him up because, you know, if you think about him and, and read about what he thought and, you know, what what fascinated him, he was very much a primitivist. He almost had no use for the modern world of the 1930s. He, he was all about kind of this old-fashioned sense of, of honor and sense of kind of masculinity that Mm. was a bygone era of long, long ago, even by the time he lived, and, and by now seems positively paleolithic. So that, that <laughs> message of, you know, artists always kind of being out of their time definitely resonates with me. Well, I, I think, too, that every 20 years or so, there's a decade 
that really does make you want to dream about why we're here, uh, who we are. And, and I think that sometimes people are able to capture that notion. And I think John Carter is probably one of the greatest examples. Mm -hmm. um, Conan is another huge example of, of bleak conditions leading to great ideas. I mean, uh, Hemingway did this too, uh, in, in, a, in a darker sense. I mean, great, I think that great artists face dark times with escapism, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, and we go with that, especially when it's really fun. <laughs> and so to, to think of Zamora is, is such a simple thing compared to the complexity, even if you think about today. Um, I, I think that he's he's incomparable, really, as a writer. And his struggle is is both triumphant and sad. And I, I, I think it's telling of of being an artist. And also I I'm happy for you to share that blood because I, I really do believe in DNA and in blood and in in tendencies in people. Mm-hmm. And I think it bodes well and terrible for you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Hopefully I will live to see 31. But <laughs> as long as that spark is there, as long as I know that someone else, uh, someone else with the last name of Howard did the same thing almost 80 years ago, then yeah, that definitely can drive me forward. Well, the impact of Conan... I think it's easy to underestimate. Mm -hmm. I think nowadays um, it's a little bit assumed that that Conan exists, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just there. But there was a time when that world was not conjured. Mm -hmm. And I see that as a poorer world. And so a lot of people fantasize about the past. Right. Especially when times get tough, like nowadays, I mean, fucking welcome to 2020, bitch. Yeah. But people fantasize about the past in a way that they don't realize some key elements that actually let them visualize the past they're fantasizing about. And I think Conan is a huge part of that. It's an imaginary past that is also less imaginary than it may seem. Mm -hmm. And we didn't always have that. There were cowboys in 1870 who were riding across the plains of America who didn't know about Conan. Can you imagine that? Not <laughs> knowing who Conan the Barbarian is? Mm -hmm. Like how much smaller your view of the world would be. And so I think we, maybe you're, your listeners are sick of hearing it, but I sure as hell am not. Mm. I really believe that the visualization of fantasy is not a guaranteed thing. It's something we owe to people. Mm. And we also owe it to them to keep expanding on it. Yeah. And I mean, just to point out a small microcosm of what a world without Conan would look like, uh, mm. neither of us would be doing the show right now. And 
who the hell knows what we'd even be doing with with this time because there'd be no rpgs uh dungeons and dragons would have never been created if there were no world of robert e howard and uh hyborian age and conan for the progenitors of this game to draw inspiration from Hmm. or someone would have imagined it in some other way yeah in some alternate universe because unfortunately we are now aware of quantum sort of worlds and so for the educated among us which is a phrase that i want to use more in the future because i think it's been used not enough in the last few years Mm -hmm. for people who have been educated who have multiple degrees going to college fucking matters doing research fucking matters Mm -hmm. (laughs) reading is cool yeah my fundamental message of my youtube channel reading matters if you see that bigger world maybe someone would have come up with something but it would have been different and and it's nice to know that like the burritos that mama cooked are mama's burritos. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a million way to cook a million ways to cook burritos, but we have fed upon this Conan and Lord of the Rings soup which has created fantasy for us. Mm-hmm. And man, if wars had been different, the stupidest thing that humanity has ever done maybe it would have been maybe he would someone would have died and someone else would have but that's not what happened we live in this factual world and so i really think it's hard to overstate the value of artists who give us lasting myths yep absolutely as a, as a quick aside here, Elfie and Chad is very hung up on the fact that Robert E. Howard died at 30. Is that well, he didn't die. I mean, he... Uh, mm-hmm. Die is a... <laughs> His life ended. Let's the, put it that way. The corporeal entity known as Robert Irvin Howard died at the age of 30. But Robert E. Howard, author and creator, is still very much alive as evidenced by us talking about him. Well, I love it, Ryan, that that, <laughs> that we're just kind of hanging out talking and we go to this place. I feel yeah. this is a, a good and honest place for you. It's a wonderful thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's a it's a boundless source of inspiration. It's like it's like physicists talking about Einstein. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one thing you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, you know, as we were talking about Howard and and talking about it kind of how you know hardship creates escapism I find Mm -hmm. that's extremely true uh, even within the realm of RPGs and some of the worlds that we find ourselves in to mention one that we've already talked about the world of cyberpunk Uh, just any kind of cyberpunk world you find yourself in is one that is inherently built on hardship and one that again people are tired of hearing me talk about Dark Sun also founded entirely upon hardship. Um, so a lot of those worlds, a lot of the you know stuff that you, you find yourself in as GMs and as players, the, the crazy worlds that you find yourself in do inevitably start 
with some kind of hardship, mm. probably born out of whatever the game master or creator was experiencing at that time. <laughs> well, I suppose it makes things clear, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, kind of like, um, boy, it's, it's a hard reference to call, but I have to. The film The Road. Yeah. So The Road presents you with a very limited number of variables. And I think that when you see the beginning of The Road and you start to understand the situation of that film, you understand how limited the number of choices truly are. You know, another one is The Quiet Place. Mm -hmm. it, it's, there are a very finite number of choices in this world. And I think it's a relief to role players and to viewers and audience members and readers in the case of like Bird Box was his book before it was a film. It, it, it provides you this feeling of a limited number of choices, which is, is really wonderful because the world today is so filled with choices mm -hmm. that we really, I don't think we want, <laughs> can I go out on a limb and say we don't want the apocalypse? Yeah. Absolutely. But I can say sometimes we're presented with a bewildering number of choices. Mm -hmm. But in the case of, let's take the road, for example, like you have maybe four choices at any given moment. Like, actually, fuck that. It's more like a binary situation. I mean, do you jump off of the highway and hide in the trees? Or you do you shoot a motherfucker in the face? And this simplicity i think is the beauty of cyberpunk mm. and also the sadness of cyberpunk cyberpunk is a world where we're not far from healthcare we have no healthcare we are being bolted we are being drilled we are being having computers implanted in our hands and hoping we don't get an infection. I mean, cyberpunk is a world with no support. Mm -hmm. And I think people fantasize about it, not because that it's dystopian, but because that the choices are so few. And honestly, I think for a lot of us, when we think about cyberpunk, there's really only one choice, which is what the choice that Canada made, which is fuck this. <laughs> Fuck this system. Fuck this world. I've got my shit right here. You can't touch me. And actually, if, if you try to sort of put me in a holding cell, I've got a grenade in my back pocket. Like, I think that that binary level of choice is what makes apocalyptic and cyberpunk worlds so appealing. And yet, the closer we get to it in real life, we're starting to wonder if we should have fantasized about this stuff because it's definitely coming closer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, is is that, does that keep the conversation going or was that too, too, feel like too giant? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I definitely think that can keep the conversation going because, I mean, what, one thing that, you know, makes cyberpunk super interesting, and we just talked about this with Seth Skorkowski, one of the things that oh. limits limits your choices in cyberpunk is 
as you've mentioned, there is no health care. Uh, there's no you know, human life is at kind of its lowest uh, point of value in a cyberpunk mm. world yeah. because at any given moment you could essentially just kind of become a machine. So or, or be shredded, yeah, by Uzi fire, mm-hmm. and just be shredded and just be a corpse that's just sort of pushed into the gutter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because every. Every person in a cyberpunk society is essentially a a cog in an ever moving machine. Yeah, or a liability. Yeah, or yeah, or or a liability. That's one thing I love about Daredevil, which I think a lot of people. Well, I, I don't know what that word means, or combination of words mean a lot of people, but I do think that Daredevil was greatly underestimated because its hero is so sort of quirky. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, uh, maybe before the TV show came out, um, non-Marvel readers, let me put it that way, didn't realize that that comic was really about the devaluation of human life. And Daredevil, as a comic book, was about a neighborhood being destroyed, which to me was a, a caricature or a, a retelling of the movement event that happened in philadelphia when the police bombed their own city Mm -hmm. and and people don't think about that nowadays but in the early 80s in 1983 i believe there's all these african-americans black people fucking rallying up saying man we want a better life and you know what happened they dropped a motherfucking firebomb on them this is a thing that a lot of people don't want to think about, but the the comic book Daredevil confronted this issue hmm. of the establishment literally bombing people. And, you know, this isn't a race thing. It It, it is hugely, but it wasn't all African-American people that were destroyed hmm. in that event. And if anybody listening to this podcast or watching this video, whatever, you don't know about what happened with the MOVE movement in Philly. Do some homework. Find out what happened. Because that is what inspired Daredevil. Daredevil is about Devil's Kitchen, about the seismic weapon that Kingpin uses. Like, this is not just jokey stuff. Thanks to Stan Lee and his brilliance to see that comics were a way to make a commentary on these stories this became part of the daredevil universe too like bad things have happened (laughs) yeah and pursuant to our conversation man that's that's a big rabbit hole Mm -hmm. oh yeah but i think sort of what we're talking about is that like era and time affects not only comic books and movies and stuff but rpgs to start to reflect some of these deeper myths and some of them are true mm-hmm. that go back decades i mean geez ryan the 80s seem like fucking ancient history right now <laughs> yeah I mean, they seem so. They seem so long ago. Everybody talks about the '80s all the time, right? But mm. goddamn, it's like it's 50 years ago. 
Yeah, I mean, I personally, I feel very, and this is weird to say as someone who never saw a, a day of the 80s, uh, but I feel very in touch with the 80s right now because I've been watching the Goldbergs. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like like you're saying, we're, we're very, very far removed from that. Um, I mean, you know, 19, 1980 was 40 years ago. 40 years yeah. ago. That's pretty wild, man. Mm-hmm. I, I met uh, my first true friend in 1980. It was a girl named Kimiko Hirai. She later went on to become an Olympic diver. Sweet. But uh, it was one of the first people in uh, mainland America that I met. <laughs> Anyways, we're, we're, we're digressing. What are we talking about? <laughs> yeah. Now, one thing, you and you mentioned this because you mentioned Philly, uh, but last time we talked, you were on the complete other end of the country. You were in uh, like the Seattle area, I'm pretty sure. Now yeah, you're all the way in, over uh, on the, the east hills coast. of the Cascades. Yeah. Now you're all the way over here. Uh, not close to where I am, but I'm I'm towards the eastern part of the country. You were on the east coast. What was that transition like for you? And then. Uh, I guess specifically within the realm of RPGs, what has kind of the RPG scene been like for you in in the Philly area? Oh man. Well, thank you for that question, Ryan. Shit. The first thing I have to say is that um there's a wonderful sense of humor on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. And and I I didn't know that a place could have a sense of humor. And uh, I think that for me is the biggest realization of making this journey. And you know what? I got to say, this journey is not for the faint of heart, motherfuckers. Mm -hmm. Everybody listening or watching or whatever the fuck, if you're going to move from the West Coast to the East Coast and take like nothing, take one van of stuff with you, this is not for the faint of heart. Uh, the East Coast is not necessarily a terribly welcoming place. It's a hard place. Mm-hmm. But the sense of humor here is something that the West Coast really could benefit from. The, the, the funniness of Philly in particular is, is constantly surprising to me. So that that is... Uh, Ryan, I got to tell you, that is the hugest realization that that we have had. You know, me and my girl came out here together. And in some ways, maybe I thought it was more my idea than hers. And so I I have to give her some props. You know what I mean? I keep her sort of private because she's not part of all this. But Mm -hmm. we did it together. So I didn't do it alone. But the, the humor here really there's no way to describe it unless you live here and i bet ryan you you probably know a little bit what i'm talking about there yeah there's something very very fucking funny about the east coast okay so let's put that aside the second piece is what you talked about about rpgs so the rpg world here is two things more dense way more dense just like all people-oriented things on the East Coast are way more dense. The West Coast is about space. 
there's so much space on the West Coast and everybody loves it. Everybody wants a big property. Everybody wants to look at these giant mountains and stuff. And they're beautiful. On the East Coast, it's all about people. It's people, people, people. Do not come to the East Coast if you don't love people mm. because they're everywhere, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> so, but in this regard, the RPG world is so much more dense and abundant here. And I know we've been living in COVID this year, so I can't really take this to the bank yet. But the number of people who are within five, 10 miles of me who just want to get together and roll bones is 100x at the outside, maybe 75x on the conservative side. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of people are playing D&D and want to play and play D&D together. They want to just have a beer. I had this whole awkward period when I first moved here right before COVID. It was about two weeks before the first lockdown where everybody was just saying, hey, come over here and have a beer. Hey, come over here and have a beer. And me and my girlfriend just ran around town trying to have a beer <laughs> with motherfuckers. Mm. <laughs> but everybody was so funny about it. Everybody was just so sort of loose. Mm. So... I mean, I appreciate your question, Ryan, but oh my goodness, brother. It, it, it is a huge journey. The West Coast is very private, especially the Northwest has a, you know, a bit of a, a cool freeze to it. But damn, the East Coast, nobody gives a shit. Everybody mm. just wants to buy you a cheesesteak and say, get over here. You know, it, it's just, it's very human oriented here rather than land oriented, which I think the West Coast, by the way, this is not a critique. The West Coast is fucking beautiful. And I understand that people like big pieces of beauty, but in the East Coast, man, with all the history and dang, man, these neighborhoods are crazy. And people just love each other out here and it's great. So is that a is that is that a reasonable answer? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't. I just. I gotta say, fuck COVID. Yes. Because this shit just needs to end. Because the number of high fives that need to be delivered is reaching a exponential <laughs> level. Yeah, I mean, like this. This was not only going to be the year that I went uh, live and started doing like a video component to my show. I was also going to like make convention rounds and totally. play, play games with a bunch of people. 2020 um, was going to be the big con year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was I was planning on like getting I was planning on doing T-shirts for the show and giving everyone who has been on the show a T-shirt, which will still happen at some point. You you probably would be holding my hair back as I vomited if it weren't for COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'd be at Gen Con. Or, well, actually, Gen Con was back in September. I'd be like, Ryan, dude, I, I love you. <laughs> please, please, could you hand me my other shoe? <laughs> uh, absolutely. I'd be. That, that's I'd, what Gen That's Gen Con. <laughs> yep. I'd be. Although there. And and I've witnessed this firsthand. I don't know what parties at Gen Con are like. 
But to borrow a phrase, there's drunk and then there's Dragon Con drunk. I don't know if you've mm. ever been to Dragon Con. Not but, yet. But to to tell you the level of debauchery that happens at Dragon Con, <laughs> w- when I was going regularly, we'd get there on Thursday and check into the hotel and just kind of walk around the main hotels to see all the people who were coming in the night before the con. Mean mugging. Yeah. Yeah, just, just yeah, walking around. <laughs> Me and the boys gonna gonna walk around the convention floor. Yeah, look at all these punks. <laughs> but on Thursday, before even the first panel, you'd already see people holding their friends, but, like, one friend would have one arm, the other friend would have the other arm, dragging them into the elevator because they were already that drunk. The first night is the biggest night. Yeah. And this was pre-first night. Yeah, that's that's before anybody realizes how long of a slog it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, and I I can't even imagine the like being hungover for the first day of a four day con. Well, the you... the last Gen Con that I did, and I I have to thank everybody, any one of you who are listening right now who who came out. That was that was fucking amazing. That was um, geez, that was Gen Con twenty eighteen. That was so great and and packed packed that room for my different talks uh, and and then packed the hallway and like that whole experience of of people learning that I'm not hankering for nail that I'm Brandon and like that whole experience was uh was was quite a rush but also was not what I bargained for is <laughs> not really my thing I could see that sort of some people would sort of want to smoke that drug, but that was not my drug of choice. My drug of choice is beer. And um, that last, that was a really, really fun time. We also all tried to play a fucking uh, tiny quest Mm -hmm. together. And it was such a train wreck. (laughs) Uh, And it just, there's, I mean, there's like, 40 of us (laughs) it's not gonna work out so we're kind of playing crazy eights it was just great i i I miss the chaos and the the not knowing what's next of cons Mm -hmm. i've i really really ryan i hope you know and i hope everyone listening knows that just what i really love is just people people are so fucking interesting and I think that's what our hobby is at its root. Mm-hmm. You know, even if you're painting miniatures, what you're really doing is hoping that someone will respond to how you painted the miniatures, right? Yeah. And and if you're designing a room with a trap or a, a monster that's this one's not going to be beatable or something, what you're really doing is hoping that human beings that you care about are going to respond in a way and like, I really, really love people Hmm. and to see them in large numbers and to interact with them like, man, it's so crazy fun. And, and 2020, I gotta say, fuck you. So hopefully we'll all just get vaccinated, like triple vaccinated. And by summer next year, we're going to be rolling real dice, not pushing these little bitch ass buttons. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I, sorry, I took that way too far. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 
Look, I completely agree with you there. I'm, I. <laughs> what is this podcast about again, Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> about an hour and a half. That's how long. Yeah, oh, that, yeah, right, right. It's a fair <laughs> estimate. It's a fair estimate. <laughs> But no, I and I have to mention this because again, Elfie and Chat mentioned it. Elfie's my wife, by the way. Um, but but cons hold a very special place in my heart because you have that personal interaction. You get to see all these people who you get energy from. Uh, but also, you know, you meet people who end up having a huge impact on you. I met my wife at Dragon Con, and and oh dang, yeah, that you got that RPG wife. Yeah, it was a Woo! cosplay wife. Uh, I had That's to get unicorn. her. I had to get her into RPGs. That is um, a unicorn. Yes, absolutely. I I am a very lucky man. <laughs> Me too, brother. Absolutely. Me too. But no, one thing you mentioned about the miniature painting because this is I, I've spent a lot of these endless hours that we all seem to have now painting miniatures. Yeah, I mean, those of you who have a video feed, you can see the insanity over here. Mm-hmm. And I can turn mine and, and show you all the the army over here, the <laughs> giant dragon that still needs to be painted. Yep, um, I just finished my sixth army. So tell me, tell me of your, oh. of your journey of, of crazy army painting. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of what I've been doing is just kind of, you know, trying to hone skills and, and become a better painter. Um, but the the one thing that really kind of stood out to me about when you were mentioning the, the personal aspect of this hobby, when you're painting a miniature, um, you are imbuing a piece of plastic with a personality. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you really are, or a piece of metal, uh, depending on what you're painting. Like, I, great example, I'm right now working on this like Scottish dwarf. He's got the, the mutton chops and a kilt and a Tam O'Shanter <laughs> and he's holding a dagger and just the, the sculpt has so much personality and the paint that I put on him, I feel like just kind of enhances that personality. So even when you are painting something, you're, you're imbuing a, an inanimate object with some kind of, you know, sense of, of being and the the cool thing about using these miniatures is when you get one when a player sees one and thinks you know that right there embodies what i want in my character and they paint it for themselves or you know it maybe it's something that you painted that a player just kind of you know picks up on and vibes with Mm. But we're we're using these things. Those of us who game with miniatures, we're we're using these things as conduits for our imagination. Well, I think a... you underestimate something you said, right? Which is the the phrase "vibes with." Yeah, vibes with is huge, man. Mm-hmm. That that's where somebody goes like, "Oh, dang, this guy's always hungry. This this guy can't get enough food." Or you know, you give them some kind of darker character that you've done where the, the eye sockets are certainly, you know, some little detail you didn't really think meant something. And they'll be like, I never leave a kill unfinished. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Somebody who stabs dead bodies to make sure, all based on some detail of the miniature. Mm-hmm. 
I really agree with you. Like those lamb chops that you mentioned, like, I mean, everyone knows that all dwarves are Scottish. Yeah. But to have a miniature that gives you details. So maybe that character needs to shave those those lamb chops every two days to make sure they don't get unruly. That is the stuff of storytelling. Yeah. Not something that's going to make you better in combat, not blah, blah, blah. I have this die and that bonus action. Fuck that. I I really agree with you, my brother. It's like the energy you put in comes back out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially at the table. It's It's been getting harder because we've all been playing online this year, which is getting quite tiresome. But for those of us who have a little sort of safe pod, who are starting to play together again, um, which we're just now starting to develop. We had two people in our house last week. <laughs> this is huge in 2020. Yeah. <laughs> we sat, we talked about Lord of the Rings. We drank a lot. <laughs> but I really, really not only agree with what you're saying, Ryan, but also I want to just press it forward. Painting plastic, painting metal, the attention to detail that is involved in our hobby has an outcome. It really does. It's not just obsession that you put away. It it has an effect on others. And is am I correct to understand that's what you meant? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, and and if if you know a specific aspect or detail of a miniature didn't matter, if it was just you know this is a thing that I put on here because aren't I cool? I know how to sculpt uh, plastic, or you know, hey, I can paint these little tiny details. <laughs> if those if those didn't matter, then we would all be playing with little wooden meeples on a flat map because that's all, it's just a representative of, you know, where your character is at a given time. No, but the, these details matter because of the effect that they have on us, because they capture our imagination and allow us to think, you know, if, you know, if this detail on this miniature is, is something that I hold about my character, like you said, you know, how how often do I have to maintain the mutton chops? What what does my state of mind become if after a few days of adventuring, uh, I finally see myself in front of a mirror and they're just kind of grisly and there's a like a, a orc finger stuck in one mutton chop? You know, what does that do to your character mentally? Mm. I, I think it's wonderful. I, I really do think that miniatures, I don't know, they're, you don't want them to be such an anchor of imagination, but they just fucking kind of are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the shit's half an inch tall, but God damn it, my Warhammer does look like that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, again... I, I was someone who started out playing theater of the mind. I think a lot of people do start that way. Yeah. Um, and, and until you've done it, until you've used a miniature, until you've painted your own miniature, 
it does seem like this is something people do to go above and beyond. Immediately, I was this way with terrain, too, up until not too terribly long ago. You know, I'd think, okay, yeah, Joe Manganello is flexing because he can afford the table with the fog machine and all the crazy terrain. Oh, oh no. But honestly, I think... Well, for one, he does it because he has the money to do it, but the reason he spends his money that way is that puts him in the right mindset when he is running or playing in a game that having all of this cool stuff puts him in a place where he's able to fully embody what's going on and really understand you know, what's, yeah. what's going on in the game and feel it in his heart, in his mind, everywhere while he's playing it. It's not just because he's rich, bitch, to quote Charlie yeah, Murphy. We, we all have conditions. Yeah. We all have conditions. And I, I think the only thing that you can do wrong with all this is deny your conditions. Mm. You know, if your conditions require... Well, let's take an extreme example. If your conditions require... That you are dressed as your fucking character, which I find uh, terribly awkward. <laughs> but hey, for the sake of this statement, if if that puts you in there, and everyone around you starts giggling a little bit, and starts to feel a little more loose and a little more silly, then do your conditions. If your conditions are that you drink alcohol, if your conditions are that you listen to fucking Sepultura. If your conditions are that you take your glasses off and put your contacts in. If your conditions are that you grease your hair back. If your conditions are that you hand out a bunch of weird multi-page fucking backstory things that talk about like why beholders are xenophobic and spelljammer. Why there's no metal in Dark Sun. And this is a huge description. If, if something puts you in a comfortable space to be yourself and to be stupider and weirder and more awkward and crazier than you were two hours ago because you were commuting or doing your job or making dinner or something, do the fucking things. Mm -hmm. And no more talk about true hobbyists, about who does the right thing and who doesn't, because... I, I, I don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. I, I love that people go into it with different ways. And if you have a bunch of money and you have a bunch of dwarven forge and shit and you bring it to bear at the table, then goddamn fucking rock on. Yeah. You know, and, and, and there shouldn't be any disdain between any table for another table. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's really played and I mean really played, like role played at a con, knows that from one table to the next, it's a different world. Yeah. Like six feet that direction, I don't even know what the fuck those guys are doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you can just accept it and bring it in. And Ryan, I'm so sorry that I'm just like blabbering so much tonight, but I have to bring in a beautiful example I saw this girl walking down the street with a fanny pack on and it had a rainbow colored uh, belt on it. Now, that seems like a small thing, right? Mm -hmm. 
But to me, the the gay and the underrepresented fucking community in this world. And I'm sorry to just I don't I don't know how to call everybody out and how to give everybody representation. But I've really feel like if you show some kind of little rainbow on whatever it is you're doing, that symbol has been taken now to symbolize we accept AI people. <laughs> we accept people of every freaking imaginable configuration. And I really believe that that is part of us. Role playing is 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 one of the vanguards of acceptance. Mm -hmm. And and what you describe about like these silly sort of states with mangan yellow as a perfect fucking example as like this sort of macho mega successful badass motherfucker hmm. who also needs like dwarven forge and then like okay i'm in it there's no judgment yeah that's what you want fuck i'm in bro mm -hmm. i'm an old dwarf what are we doing <laughs> i'm ready to role play yeah. and i i really want everyone who's listening and and you as well ryan between me and you, I really truly believe that what we do as a an imaginative hobby, inclusivity and imagination is something that belongs to absolutely fucking everyone with a capital E. And like everybody gets to come and show up and imagine themselves in whatever way they want. Hmm. And your example is a, is a, is a perfect gateway into a bigger. A, honestly a huge fucking topic yeah about why what we do and our hobby is so fucking cool mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah and and honestly there there's no need to apologize because this is this is a topic i don't get to talk about a lot on the show um, because a lot of times it's just kind of focused on, okay, you know, we're going to talk about this game or, you know, what, what's your Kickstarter project or what's this, that <laughs> there's a lot of, there's always a specific thing to talk about, but to just kind of talk a little bit about kind of the, the metaphysics or the, the philosophy behind why it takes certain things, why it takes certain material components to cast the spell, if you will. Mm. Um, this is something that fascinates me as someone who studied a lot of philosophy. The, the, I'm looking right at my Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy right now. It's right over here. Um, yeah. But, you know, th this kind of stuff fascinates me, and it's stuff that we get to talk about so little on the show uh, so I, I greatly appreciate you, you know, taking us down these rabbit holes and, and being able to have this discussion about, you know, not just the thing we enjoy, but why we enjoy it, what brings this out in us and, and why this is a hobby that endures and continues despite being kind of the lowest tech form of entertainment, just sitting around collaboratively telling a story that's been around since there were like two cavemen we're like bands yeah man we're just like bands bands get together they're four people who like to do drugs and get drunk together and make sounds mm -hmm. 
and role playing groups are people that like to get together and do drugs and get drunk and come up with stories. Yeah. And 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 that is the goddamn simple truth of it. Now you can put yourself in any different alignment with the different components of that truth and over time what you want and what you need to put yourself I love that you you described it in this way of putting yourself needing what you need to put yourself there. Mm-hmm. I love that because there's a million fucking versions but we don't like bands make music we make stories and i think it is a it is a truly timeless habit a truly timeless habit people get together in groups of four or five or six and they start sort of wondering what if and they start sort of playing this little game and we have just learned to codify it Mm -hmm. and i think when people lose sight of it well, that's when people like me and you are here to holler. At least for me, that that's my mission. It's like I was beat up for this shit. That's not really a thing that's happening nowadays mm-hmm. because bullying has been defeated. I mean, as a person who grew up in the 80s, I can tell you, Ryan, bullying is defeated. It's fucking over. Now, is it still part of our society? Yes but not like it was. It was very, very bad in the early 80s. Very, very bad. And the war that creative people have been waging against bullying has succeeded over the past 30 years. It really has. And I have been in that war the whole way and i really believe that it's natural for smart people who read a lot of books to get together and sit down and accidentally start talking about what becomes world playing Mm -hmm. and i'm 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 a little bit sad that role play or DD right now is sort of like skateboarding in the early 90s like there's a lot of sort of casual investors right now. So there's a lot of money in it. And mm-hmm. it's a little bit like the X Games was yeah. in its early years. But I'm also happy because the war against bullying is almost won. I mean, I don't want to really, really talk about larger topics, but we have bigger bullies to beat in the world. But as far as small bullies... Man, compared to 40 years ago, 30 years ago, we've come so far and it makes me very happy. So I love talking about what you describe as not talked about enough, which is the existential component. Why we're doing this. Yeah. We're we're telling stories because a lot of us have limitations. But in our worlds that we imagine, we don't. And all those motherfuckers who said the fucking battle wheelchair is lame, fuck you. (laughs) Because you're being called out right now. (laughs) That is a perfect example of why role playing is so fun. Battle wheelchair is in my group. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and it's... 
you you mentioned another thing that that I find very endlessly fascinating and something that I I find um there are other there are other cautionary tales in recent memory that kind of warn of this um but D&D is very much in a boom period right now you you mentioned the casual investors absolutely Um, booming like crazy yeah extreme sports are a good example to pull another one from the 90s you know comic books uh sports cards these are all industries that had a lot of a lot of speculation now that's very hard to do with role-playing um you can't you can't hoard RPG sessions thinking they're going to pay off college. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work that way. You but can't there's, save them for later. <laughs> yeah. But th- there's a lot of eyes on D&D right now. There's a, there's a big celebrity culture that's being built in this, in this game right now. At some point, those eyes are going to turn away. And there's going to be a lot of people who will say, hey, do you remember D&D as if it's not there anymore? What's great about this hobby, though, is it's always going to be there. It's always, you know, it, it's been there since, you know, since the 70s. It, I, the, you could argue it's been there even longer because wargaming goes all the way back to the dawn of time. But yeah, it sure does. Th- this is something that's, always going to be there and so you know what those of you who are newly here first of all welcome uh because this is a behold the landscape like welcome 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 a million times Mm -hmm. yeah and behold the craziness that all us motherfuckers are into like get in here Mm mm-hmm yeah, you 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 stepped on the Rainbow Bridge. You can see Valhalla off in the Get distance. Get the fuck there. in here! Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of room in Asgard mm-hmm. for everybody. There, there's no exclusion here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, second of all, there, as we've said, there's so much more to this than what there's so much more to this than Stranger Things. There's there's more to this <laughs> than you know what what you're seeing. Uh, you know, on on the TV shows that do the Dungeons and Dragons episode, I know I mentioned the Goldbergs already. You know that they did a D and D episode. There were like five Big Bang Theory episodes on D and D. It's it's all there's a community episode. It's all over the place. Or the um, uh, the South Park World of Warcraft episode, I think was was pretty big too. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, there's tons of visibility here. So those of you who maybe at this point you are casual, if you're watching the show and you're a casual observer of role playing, I would like to thank you for stumbling upon this um, this very in. insider show. Come but yeah, on just in. we got there's beer and food for everybody. Mm-hmm. Get in here. Yeah, we consider this the Morpheus moment of of us saying, you know, I'll show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Come on in. Yeah, there is no blue pill. Fuck the blue pill. Yeah. Get the fuck in here. Come on in. It's going to get weird. You're going to have a bard next year. Yeah. And and it's going to be like a, a like a half tiefling bard that looks like Ben Affleck. <laughs> and you're female. So that's going to be a whole world of of things you're going to be dealing with like 8 months from now, but Get the fuck in here. Come on, motherfuckers. Come on. Everybody get a skateboard. Come on. Let's all go skating. Yeah. 
You know, fuck it. Get in here. Mm-hmm. Like the popularity isn't a problem. Yeah. It's the it's the money that is a little bit awkward. And you know, it's it's just like you said, Ryan. It's just it's just gonna sort of it's gonna blow by. And that's fine. The it's welcome, by the way, because like the proliferation and creativity we've been seeing is great. And I've benefited from that very proliferation. I can't talk shit about it. Yeah. But welcome, 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 welcome. And as you said, in about two, three, five, ten years, we'll just be another sort of little thing. And that's totally fucking okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel good about it. <laughs> just get the fuck in here and roll a tiefling bard. Cry mini. Yeah, absolutely. Get in here. I, my group, God knows, well, whichever one of them knows, needs a tiefling bard. Mm-hmm. Bunch of halflings. Ugh. <laughs> See, Always think... choosing bacon over war. So hard to motivate. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, a war over bacon. I think you can. I think you can hook them there. <laughs> we we have much to discuss. <laughs> <laughs> the slaughterhouse is under attack. <laughs> there will be no more bacon. <laughs> All the spell jammers just stop in low orbit. <laughs> Lord Soth is confiscating all of the bacon in this realm for his personal stash. It's all in his helmet. <laughs> yep. He's just, he's just chewing on it, just constantly inside the helmet. You don't even get to see it. Mm-hmm. Chewing. In fact, if you're able to remove the helmet, just bacon will fall down. You might not even see his head. It's just bacon everywhere. I have uh, two entire campaigns now, Brian, where Lord Soth was not defeated. Not defeated. And the campaign completed. Not beaten. I've never seen him beaten. Played out of the second edition rules. I've never seen him beaten. Gotcha. He is tougher than Tiamat. Mm-hmm. I, I would put that out in the air. Tiamat has some keyhole defeat elements that mm-hmm. players key in them, but Lord Soth is, is I, I would say, not. It's easier to kill Strahd than Soth. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, and Soth kind of has that built in he'll be back thing. That... Dude, he's terrible. Yeah. Well, Strahd, Strahd just takes misform. Mm-hmm. He goes down to his little thingy do, but if they already have like a fucking holy hand grenade down there, they've mitigated it. But Soth isn't like that. Soth is like Soth is like killing roses. Yep. <laughs> There's always gonna be one. There's gonna be one that's it's gonna pop up right at the end of the movie, right before the credits. Yep. There's going to be a little black rose that rises out of the swamp and then credits. Yep. Yeah, the, the little Audrey 2 from the end of Little Shop of Horrors. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful reference. Yes. You just, you, you missed the one little seed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you, you thought you killed him, but you just killed most of him. Mm-hmm. He's a yeah, dirty, that dirty kind bird. of stuff always fascinates me about D&D, especially the uh, 
some of the like older school creatures that just weren't statted because they were just saying, you know, you, no, you you can't do it. The Lady of Pain comes to mind from Planescape. Uh-huh. Does yeah. not even have a stat block. The text just says you can't. Don't don't try it. No, don't even. You uh, won't. Zug- Zugmoy is like that too. Mm-hmm. Zugmoy is just like the spores are everywhere. So you have this huge cataclysmic confrontations with Zugmoy, and she's like the fucking queen of the freaking fungus, and like the Mykonids are all no. Nah! And then you you win because you're fucking 15th level. Everybody goes back to their fortress and they're like Matt Colvilling as they're like, oh man, we have four dragons guarding this shit. And then little mushrooms start to grow. <laughs> oh shit, no. <laughs> oh shit. They're kind of green colored. Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> that one's got a purple top on it. <laughs> And even like uh, even some of the stuff that is statted, like in, in Call of Cthulhu, if you somehow if you manage to end up in a in a fisticuffs with Cthulhu, yes, you can beat Cthulhu. He's got stats, but again, he'll be back. Well, not back. He was never gone. Yeah. So are those the best or the worst enemies? In a lot of ways, I think they're the best because so often in role-playing, we find ourselves, uh, you know, holding to the standard of we have to end this threat. We have to make sure this threat's never going to come back. And I think there's a lot of kind of storytelling to mine with this idea, and again, this gets back to what Dark Sun is, this idea that in the end, you are not going to win the way that a lot of people think of the conception of winning. Winning for you is living to fight another day. It's overcoming this threat for now. It's uh, finding a way to stop this with full knowledge that it'll be back or it's not even fully gone but for the time being we have secured our little our little piece of ground our our piece of uh you know this history wherein we made the world a little bit safer for 10 or so minutes before this thing comes back And currently, there is darkness. Well, I was just thinking deeply about Dark Sun. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Like, um... <laughs> With Dark Sun, it, it, I think it's fun to, um, to do a thing that I've actually been critiqued on uh, at multiple intervals which is uh, people ask me sort of how do you bring sort of gravity or, or doom to the table? And it's not easy because it, it's a jokey space. It's a, it's a drink space. It's, a, it's everyone talking and, and, and it's really hard to bring doom there. But Dark Sun is fun to me um, because there's a, a, a fundamental sort of statement that you can give your players 
or as a player, you can embody. I, I don't like to weigh it. You know, the GM is just another player. But there's one unique thing about Ethos, which is the planet that Dark Sun takes place on, which which is something that we can never imagine here on Earth or on any other mortal planet, which is that when you sort of close your eyes and you're desperate or lost or also in victory, actually victory is an even darker state to close your eyes and to hope to feel fucking something, some greater entity. There is nothing, nothing there. Athos hmm. is the only planet in the known cosmos, especially in the second edition Spelljammer sense, which has been forsaken by the gods. There are no fucking gods. So this may seem esoteric or whatever, but think back to that last long, hot shower that you took. So you're sort of sitting there in this meditative state. You're by yourself. You're there. You're not necessarily calling out to a god. But if you were to, to feel this void, that is ethos. And, and I think that is the essence of Dark Sun. People have critiqued me about bringing dragons into Dark Sun and stuff like this. I don't think it fucking matters. Dark Sun is very easy to play. There's only two rules. One, there's no metal. And two, when you look within or when you call without or when you look for purpose in your life, there are no gods. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is... That you can play with that forever in the story. Hmm. Imagine how the evil would become more evil. Yeah. How people wouldn't have a conscience. They wouldn't have bad dreams about doing the right thing. And you know what, Ryan, from me to you as a human being, I don't know what the influence of the so-called gods are on our lives. But I do know one thing. If there's no influence of the so-called gods on our lives. It would be a very brutish, a very Hobbesian existence. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the essence of Dark Sun. Yeah. Yeah, Dark Sun, uh, again, just to, to get into another philosophical concept, Dark Sun is a world where your uh, your basic necessities of food, shelter, and water are not met on a daily basis. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you're all the way down, you're you're at the basic stuff. You're essentially an animal no matter what you're playing because all you need to yeah, it's a struggle on a daily basis to find food, shelter and water and then, and then in the slave pits when you cry out yeah. why the why the fuck do I exist? You get no answer. Mm -hmm. You get a whip. Uh, and then, yeah. Yeah. Well, great. You're a GM, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, there's another sting. Mm -hmm. That is a great way to encapsulate, like, not only what Dark Sun is about, but it kind of, in, in some ways, reveals to us what other games are about. 
and how they lean upon meaning and how they lean upon gods and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's honestly, if anyone out there is, is looking to, you know, find new ways to, you know, make your games interesting or to put stakes in your game, adding that initial sense of a hopelessness of a, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be anything out there to give, uh, the, the characters any purpose and yet they need to find one anyway. That's a good starting point. And, mm -hmm. um, something that I ended up discussing, uh, this, this was a couple months ago. You guys haven't heard this yet, uh, but it'll be out soon. Tim Mathias and I did an episode of his podcast of Knights and Nerds talking about a low magic world and what that would look like for your players. Hmm. Yeah. It a, a low magic world is one where, you know, these these kind of extra planner forces are not acting as strongly upon this world. It's going to look a lot like Dark Sun or like Conan where gods are either distant and terrible or they just aren't there there there's no kind of higher power or even ridiculed to. and shunned yeah i'm just like what are you one of those clerics mm -hmm. get, get the fuck out of here yeah and, and ridiculed and shunned would be a a good response in a lot of places as, as we talked about ah. there uh you know you you'd be so lucky to be ridiculed and shunned some people might stone you or burn you, or try to cut your head off. I, I think that is a wonderful place to start some of the best games. Mm -hmm. I think also it's a good second campaign for people. Yes. I think a lot of people, uh, well, I don't know what I mean by people, but individuals that I have encountered, let me put it that way. Let's build from evidence, not generalizations. The first time they play, they like the Dragon Ball Z effect. Hmm. The second time they play, they love being peasants for reasons that are still somewhat unclear to me as a storyteller, but they love to go to the high and then ask for the next round, can we talk about hunger? Can we talk about poverty? Can we talk about you know, being on the fringe, you know, like maybe how Torchbearer talks about it or how Simba Room talks about it. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a natural progression there. And I think to go from being the Powerpuff Girls to the Powerpuff Girls again is not a very sustainable situation for a good group. Yeah. And so I love when they go from the Powerpuff Girls to Ren and Stimpy. Mm-hmm. Or they go from um, sort of the the forgotten realms into Torchbearer. I, or I, I just love when they make that transition. They realize that, you know, who we are is probably a lot less. Or maybe they see Tiamat. This is another great thing. If, if a group defeats an elder dragon or even a... An, in, in my world, an undefeatable thing like Tiamat, if they, if they have that, 
I think what they want to do is it's almost like um, uh, American Ninja, right? They, <laughs> they want to go back and train again mm-hmm. because training was more fun than winning. Yeah. And I'm not sure how to package or comprehend that behavior, but there is definitely something there which you're sort of hinting at. Hmm. Well, yeah. And, and- I'm constantly trying to rediscover it with all the groups I'm playing with. Mm-hmm. Well, you you can see that kind of play out in a lot of uh, fiction. If you if you think about superheroes, who were the first two superheroes? Superman and Batman. Absolutely. The the faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Man of tomorrow, impervious, super powerful, and then a man who is orphaned and has no powers and has to fight street crime with his bare hands. He's rich, but broken and killed. Yes. Killed by apocalypse. Those are the two. Those are the first two superheroes. So there, there's definitely this element of everyone wants to be, everyone wants to be Thor, and then they want to be Daredevil. Uh, everyone, everyone wants to see both, both extremes, especially when it's new to them. And they, and they should. Yeah. Because this is a free space. We get to fucking be Green Lantern, and we get to be Rocket the Raccoon. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and they should want that contrast, and I, I I think that's something that maybe gets a little bit lost in this sort of um, whatever this is, you know, this linear. I started out as Frodo, and now I'm Gandalf. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of the more long term players and hobbyists, they see that they Frodo never becomes Gandalf that. Frodo is beautiful because it's fucking Frodo. He doesn't got no shoes. Gandalf wears boots. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference there. And like, I I think that this is meaningful for our bigger conversation, you know, which is yeah. like, damn, sort of what's the existential impetus that's driving us. And it's not, growth and power and you know it's it's something more wonderful it's it's another thing let's go back to the beginning superman and batman the best parts of their stories are their origin parts mm-hmm. when they go from nothing to something and then once they're badasses we start losing interest in them i think that's informative to us as storytellers with our friends our friends want to go from nothing to something, but then not be something forever. <laughs> yeah, I've been Superman for almost 70 years now. Uh, not much has happened. <laughs> mm-hmm. I voted a few times. I ate cheeseburgers for recreation because I don't require food. Ugh, yeah. Boring. But yeah, and and one thing that this does when you give people the the you know the Monty Hall game, as some people have have called it before, you know, where they're laden with magic items and super powerful, and then you get to see the other side, the uh, you know, the, we're struggling for every last inch we can get, and we're we're lucky if we ever see a plus one sword. 
it it sets the boundaries. It sets the this is the highest high and the lowest low. And now that you've seen both, everything in between is there for you to explore and find, you know, what what you're most comfortable with as a player and then later as a GM. And so said it very well. Yeah, as as new players, again, for any new players who are listening to this, the it, there is no way to quote unquote do it right. But one way that you can do it well is to find those extremes, find the outer limits at which these RPGs are played. And once you have an idea of how crazy, powerful, weird can this get and how gritty, grounded, uh, visceral can this get, once you have that sense of, of where things can go, the middle ground is yours to explore and, and to and find. Very- yeah. And hurry. Hurry your way to the top and hurry your way to the bottom. Mm-hmm. There's no time to waste. Like, don't take 20 sessions to explore an island. Just fucking hurry. You have a whole book. You have Wild Mount or you have Chults or something. Fucking blast through it in three sessions. Just just blaze because this sort of um, misconception that that our hobby is about slow whatever the fuck no <laughs> slow things don't interest me i call to the great god taika watiti one of the few to truly understand not only marvel but also star wars to get it Mm-hmm. To, to get that we don't want to stare at a person for 20 minutes. <laughs> what we want is to just rip through it. The movies failed to do what The Mandalorian does because they just wouldn't fucking get through it. They're just soaking. And I, I think that, that The Mandalorian is not only the most brilliant form of Star Wars, but it's also a clinic on D&D. Mm-hmm. You just plop, do a thing, it's exciting, you're out of there. Yep. It, it's, you know what? There's a million untied strings. <laughs> and, you know, there's not a, a zillion different voice acting things and a bunch of dick jokes. No. You just get in there, some action happens. Holy shit, Yoda ate the egg. Oh my God, that was a human being in frog form. And then you're out of there, adventure's over. That mindset, I think, is it's the Xena mindset. It's the it's the old Buck Rogers mindset. Mm -hmm. It's the fall guy mindset. Mm -hmm. Fucking A, it's the CIS mindset. If you really want to get dirty. I guess it's called NCIS now. <laughs> Ryan, what the fuck are we talking about, man? <laughs> I think we're out on Callisto somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that I, RPGs really are made for that kind of uh, kung fu or uh, you know Bill Bixby, Incredible Hulk type storytelling. Yeah, where, at the end you you walk yeah. off with your duffel bag. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Is, is the story really resolved? No. There's a million loose ends. Like, why isn't he in jail? 
and it's it's fine. He's dun, 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 dun. Yep. That's a great example, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Incredible Hulk is just like Mandalorian. Yeah. The episode ends with the Razor Crest sort of blasting off, whether it's you know falling apart or or you know the back hatch is open or like one rocket doesn't work. Just like Bill Bixby walking down the highway and you know maybe he's got like tennis shoes maybe he's got boots on he's in like a weird outfit maybe it's cold mm-hmm. but it's that that sense of episode and also release like release all those loose ends you know fuck yep. it. <laughs> and and if to circle all the way back around to kind of where we were at the beginning of this uh, there's all this talk of, you know, the I, I think Netflix now has the rights to the Conan the Barbarian TV show. If you guys are going to make it, it's not going to be Game of Thrones. It can't be Game of Thrones. It's got to be The Incredible Hulk or The Mandalorian. That's that's how that story needs to be told or how those stories need to be told with that particular character and you know with characters like this that are kind of born of the line of conan that's that's vital to making it work you're not gonna be able to make it fit into the george rr R. martin uh jello mold that a lot of people think things all have to be in now i would argue that george rr R. martin couldn't fit his story into the his own mold <laughs> yeah I think that's played out because it's just it's writing a check you can't cash. Mm-hmm. But if you want to fucking show up and like stab some cultists and steal a jewel and come back and trade it to the guy who said he was going to promise you the information so that you could find your people, and then he turns out to be a traitor, and so you stab him, and then you wind up having a beer and feeling like a nihilist, and then the credits roll. Mm-hmm. I can process that. You cash the check you wrote. But the, the Game of Thrones thing, the reason it went off the rails is because they needed to make shows and he wasn't done. Mm-hmm. The Red Wedding was the end of his writing. A lot of people don't realize that. And then he was scrambling to help them. Mm-hmm. The Red Wedding was the end of the game, the, the fucking Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, that's it. yep like you motherfuckers are looking for a saga in in a place where it it does not exist i mean giant wolves are super cute i cannot argue that (laughs) but if you want to make a show about conan you better get ready for the thing that maybe is uncomfortable to some viewers which is that he does not give a fuck about anything he does Mm -hmm. as a matter of fact it is the defining element of his character he does not give a fuck and every time he does, he regrets it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Then he's just like, oh, why did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's it. That's the spaceship of the Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. off. You have to see Conan going, oh, that was a waste of time. Credits. And, and this is a man who, by the end of his life, ends up becoming king and still does not give a fuck. Yeah, just like, what the fuck? Is this all you got, motherfuckers? You're choosing me? I've been just like humping and spending my way to nothing. And you want to, okay, fine. Yeah, here, mm. put the crown on there. All right. Let's call up Dagon. Fuck it. 
<laughs> well, this has been a, a fantastic time with lots of different twists and turns and paths that we don't get to explore often enough on this show. So, man, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and doing this again. Because uh, this has been a blast. And I've no, really it's great talking episode. to you, Ryan. Fucking A, man. We got to talk more often. Absolutely. So, as is customary on Rolling Bones, anything you've got to promote or push or anything you want to talk about uh, right now, absolutely go for it. It is your time. Uh, no, I don't promote things. Everybody, do your own shit. <laughs> like, if there's one thing I want to promote, like, Take a look, get your seven polyhedrals out, stare at them in a weird way and and decide what you want to do. This is not a hobby about spending. It's a hobby about doing and it's it's all of ours. And if there's a resource you need, then by all means, go get it. But no, no plug. I'm a hobbyist before I am a peddler or purveyor. <laughs> So if there's something I want to plug, it's just everybody continuing to DIY the shit out of this hobby. Mm -hmm. Like, don't believe anybody that tells you you need to buy something to do this. You can do it with a pencil and a paper and some dice and a little bit of the old brain. Absolutely. Well, guys, that is going to do it for Roland Bones for this evening. Uh, once again, thank you to Hankard Fernell for uh, coming on and, and giving us this super interesting conversation. Um, this Saturday for Danishes and Dragons, uh, as I've already said, we are creating a Dexterity Paladin. We are going to, uh, and again, just forewarning for those of you who are sick of me talking about Robert E. Howard, we're going to talk about him again on Saturday because this character that I built is pretty much Solomon Kane. So we're building a dexterity palette and we're going to talk about Solomon Kane. I hope you're interested in that. And if you're not tough shit, we're doing it anyway, because I want to talk about it. <laughs> it's going to be big hats and dual wielding. Yes, absolutely. And, and next week, um, it's the week of Thanksgiving. I don't have a regular show planned. Uh, stay tuned on Twitter for what random video game I'm going to end up streaming in this time slot because I feel like doing that, and I think it's something you guys might be interested in seeing. Uh, we'll, we'll do it democratically, and I'll let you guys kind of choose you know, what, what game we end up playing. But that's what's coming up this week. Until then, though... Whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.